you know, change is scary. And I think we're now facing more and more opportunities, though, for people to be less scared because, you know, we are social animals. We rub off on those around us. We do what those around us do. So the more people there are who are eating well and eating plant-based, that's going to rub off. And I think ultimately the big change is going to happen through ripples in the grassroots, Mm -hmm. person to person, individual to individual, sharing podcasts, sharing books, sharing information, sharing recipes, uh, and ultimately helping each other live better. That's my friend Gene Bauer of Farm Sanctuary. And yes, indeed, this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody, I'm Rich Roll, and I have a mission. It's simple, but it's powerful to help you live and be better, to become who you really are. And to do this, each week I sit down with some of the best and the brightest, the most forward thinking, paradigm busting minds across all categories of life, health, and excellence to serve and assist you and me, of course in discovering, uncovering, unlocking, and unleashing our best, most authentic selves. Thank you so much for subscribing to the show on iTunes. Thank you for spreading the word to your friends and your colleagues on social media at the water cooler. Thank you for subscribing to my newsletter, and thank you for clicking through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. We love it. Thank you. Got Gene Bauer of Farm Sanctuary on the podcast today. Great guy. Great talk coming up in a couple few. But first. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll 
and use code RICHROLL10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really wanna do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment. So that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near-lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now, I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. All right, you guys, Gene Bauer. I love this guy. He's such a cool guy, humanitarian, activist, environmentalist, marathon runner, Ironman athlete, president and founder of Farm Sanctuary, the first animal rescue organization dedicated completely to farmed animals. Gene was an early guest on the podcast back in episode 35 from June of 2013. So if you're new to the show or you missed that one, I highly suggest you go back and check that out. It's an excellent listen. And Gene's got a new book coming out this week. It comes out April 7th. You should all check it out. It's called Living the Farm Sanctuary Life. It's a great book. I got an early copy of it. And there's a lot of similarities between his book and and our book. He's got a lot of great recipes, but a lot of um, kind of lifestyle advice, uh, tenets and principles around how to live more compassionately. And what's super cool is that on Wednesday night, Gene is going to be a guest on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart to talk about his new book. I'm so excited for him. I think that's just so cool. And I'm excited about what that means for the movement that he could get such mainstream, you know, broad airwaves to talk about things that he's passionate about. Uh, We recorded this podcast about a month ago, but I saw Gene uh, last week in Marshall, Texas when I was at Health Fest. And he told me the whole story of, of how the whole John Stewart thing came to be, which I thought was really cool. And basically, John and his wife were vacationing, and in this vacation house that they were renting, somebody had left behind a copy of Gene's first book. They read it, they loved it, and since then, uh, John's wife became an active supporter of Farm Sanctuary. They came up and, and visited his farm in upstate New York. And they become acquainted. And it's just so cool that John has invited Gene to be on his show 
uh, to talk about it. So set your TiVos, everybody, or tune in to Comedy Central on Wednesday night. Do not miss that. In this episode, we talk about a lot of things, um, but it's kind of oriented around Gene's five tenets or principles that he has identified for living what he calls the farm sanctuary life, which essentially boils down to how to live and eat more in alignment with our core inherent values. We get into Gene's personal story. We talk about factory farming, the legislative landscape surrounding animal agriculture, the aspirational aspects of living more compassionately, how it's an ongoing evolution for everybody, and how the culture is really starting to shift and embrace an ethos that Gene, you know, he, this guy's been living this stuff and advocating for it for the better part of his entire adult life. So it's cool that it's now kind of reaching this um, populist kind of zeitgeist uh, tipping point moment. Casper, come on, you guys. You know him. You love him. The number one online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. I'm glad to have these guys on as a sponsor of our show. In the way that Warby Parker is disrupting the eyeglass market, Casper is doing the same for mattresses. So the mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. The average price of a typical mattress is like $1,500. So Casper is revolutionizing this industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer with an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. We have a couple of them in our house. We love them. They're made in America. They got just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, coming together for better nights and brighter days. And the cool thing is that buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. So basically, you get one in the mail. You can literally sleep on it for months. And if you decide you don't want it, you can then ship it back to them for free, no questions asked. So that's pretty cool. Today, I've got a special offer for you guys. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com forward slash roll and using the promo code roll, R-O-L-L. That's www.casper.com forward slash roll. Do it up. Okay, let's wrap it out with Gene. Well, we're going to both be in Marshall, right? You're going to that? Marshall, Texas. That's right. So I'm right. hoping to get some cool interviews with some people there because anytime you go where there's a concentration mm-hmm. of like-minded, powerful activist personalities. The mayor of Marshall, Texas is a vegan. And I know. And he's really making this an issue in that part of the world. It's I, so beautiful uh, to see. Have you been to that event before? I have. Yeah. I was there a few years ago. And it's so great to see people in the community, businesses, and others that are starting to take these issues more seriously because the mayor is really an mm-hmm. advocate. And uh, people are listening to him and he's bringing in speakers and he's creating a discussion and making people think about their food and, and all the benefits that can come from changing the way we eat. It's amazing how, you know, he became so passionate that literally he's, he has shifted the whole town, you know, <laughs> like the whole town is all about it. From what I understand, I can't wait to go and check it out. Yeah. It, it's so exciting. And so when you see little pockets like that, I, I know when I travel, I see that I'm sure for you as well, just seeing people in various communities that are making a difference and speaking out and raising awareness and encouraging others to live healthfully and well and happily and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, live in a way that feels good. And that's something that 
this, you know, eating plants instead of animals is such a sensible lifestyle and more and more people are now starting to embrace it and, and being very enthusiastic about it too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, it's come a long way since 1985 and, and you're, uh, you know, van and selling veggie hot dogs at Grateful Dead concerts, right? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, the, <laughs> the Grateful Dead are playing, you know, this summer in Chicago and we're uh-huh. hoping to have the veggie dogs there in some form, you know, yeah. so we'll see what in happens. In the same recipe? Like how did those taste? <laughs> <laughs> they were they were canned. Yeah, they were uh, linkets. I think they're now called. Uh, I don't even know what they're called, but they were Loma Linda linkets, and they're in cans, and they're pretty salty and uh-huh. mainly wheat gluten. You know, I I would still eat them, but you know, I wouldn't eat them as much as I used to. <laughs> yeah, but they still there's they still exist. They're still around. I think so. I honestly uh-huh. haven't seen them for a while. I haven't looked, but yeah. uh, they were. You could show up and find some other you know deadheads from back in the day. Remember us? Oh back yeah, then? the meatless. Look how hot far th- we've come? Oh my gosh, yeah. Maybe the, if the stadium of Soldier Field sold veggie dogs wouldn't that be a statement right right, that's what we're kind of hoping happens and um but the uh the linkettes you know they were you know 40 to a can so we would travel with our van and it was very easy to do and uh but you know we're not doing that now and Uh and hopefully that the stadium will sell them that would be beautiful well, it's quite a trajectory. I mean, we talked about it at length in the last time we spoke, so I don't want to retread too much of that. But at the same time, I think it bears notice that, you know, that's a long road from from that day to kind of the awareness and what's happening right now and the whole vegan plant-based movement and what's going on with uh, environmental awareness and conservation and, and diet and health and and you know, to you being on the pages of Time Magazine answering 10 questions, you know, it was like so cool to see that. Like, it's amazing. It must just feel like, wow, you know, like I was onto something back then when no one was paying attention and you just stuck with it, you know, from the early days until now. And, uh, and that's got to be quite affirming. It feels so good to see the kind of energy around this movement now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in addition to animal activists, we have environmental people, we have health people, we have athletes like yourself who are setting an amazing example. We have chefs that are creating food that is so delicious that nobody can say that you give things up by becoming mm-hmm. a vegan and eating plants instead of animals. So there's so many great things around this movement right now. Mm-hmm. I just uh, was talking to a friend of mine the other day, <clears throat> longtime vegan, plant-based guy, you know, has been to every restaurant, like he's eaten at every vegan, you know, he's well-traveled and everything, had never gone to Crossroads in LA and went there for the first time the other week and it just it blew his mind. You know, he blew his mind. He blew, it blew his mind that A, it was filled with people that weren't vegans that just were enjoying it and he was just amazed at the creations that that Tal could come up with, you know, and of course that's very gourmet, it's very high end, and all of that. But just the fact that it even exists at all it's, is it's like art. amazing. It's yeah. art, and and it it shows clearly that you you can have everything you want, all the flavors, all the textures, by eating plants instead of animals. And you know, I think that there still is, to some extent, a, a general prejudice against vegan food and vegan living, and so. Mm. If somebody tries something that's vegan and they don't like it, they will sometimes conclude 
incorrectly that, uh-huh. well, vegan food's terrible. I don't like it <laughs> after one thing, you know. Yeah. But if somebody eats a, a bad dish. Hopefully some- it's not your veggie dogs from the van. <laughs> it might have yeah, been back maybe, in the day. Yeah. <laughs> You're the- doing more harm than good. <laughs> I sometimes yeah. wonder, you know, because uh-huh. if, you know, I used to always think seeing something vegan on the menu was a good thing. But now I'm increasingly thinking it better taste good, <clears throat> you know, because right. if people are going to going to try it, it better be something that they enjoy so that, that, that the existing prejudice against this kind of food doesn't kick in. Mm-hmm. Especially if you label it as such. Like, you know, if you, mm-hmm. look, if you put a label on a bunch of kale and say, this is vegan, then people are making an, like a, 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 a judgment uh, about this whole lifestyle and diet based on this food, as opposed to just handing them this and saying, "Here, why don't you eat this?" Without making any kind of you know judgment, pronouncement about yes. what it is. Yeah, that's very true, and I think that's something that's happening too. Restaurants that are vegan are not broadly proclaiming mm-hmm. to be vegan, and people are trying it because that um, prejudice that they have doesn't come forward. And mm-hmm. so, I think a lot of the prejudices against vegans are starting to fall away. You know, one of them is that the food is not tasty, for example. Another is that vegans don't get all the energy they need to do triathlons and to do mm-hmm. other incredible athletic feats. So that's another thing that I think is starting to fall away, those prejudices. Um, and that vegans are a certain type. You know, vegans span the, the spectrum. You know, there are left-leaning vegans. There are right-leaning vegans. Mm-hmm. There are very health-oriented vegans. There are some that are not so. Are there any vegans in the tea party? There probably are, believe it or not. Uh, that would be interesting. I'd like to get that guy on the podcast. <laughs> How does that work? I definitely know there are some conservatives who are vegans who mm-hmm. have spoken out, in fact, against what happens to animals on factory farms and who have spoken out against the you know humans' mistreatment and disrespect for other life on the planet. Mm-hmm. And so there, you know, this does really span the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not... I mean, we joke, but like truly, like a true conservative perspective, uh, you know, why does that um, obviate a sense of compassion? You it know, sure, compassion transcends political affiliation, you know, so absolutely. why not? And I, I think, you know, in some ways, in fact, uh, progressive values sometimes come out of the idea of conserving nature mm-hmm. and preserving things and holding on to things that are important. And, and, and I think that some of those notions can be go in a direction that's not very healthy and becomes judgmental and judgmental and disrespectful mm-hmm. but you know ultimately it is about respecting nature respecting each other respecting other life other animals and living in a way that is compassionate and and most people are for that you know whatever their political you could make an argument that it is an extrapolation of the pro-life perspective. It, absolutely. There have been stuff written on that, in fact. Mm, oh, has there? That's really interesting. Yeah, Matthew Scully is a, a former speechwriter for President George W. Bush who wrote something along those lines saying that those who are pro-life should also be pro-animal life mm-hmm. and that logically they're very much aligned. You know, So you know, there's a lot of different perspectives, you know, and then of course, of course, you know, you have to look beyond, you know, I mean, the, the lives of women also matter, you know, so this is, it's complicated. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not a black and white thing. <laughs> no. All right. So no Ironmans, no, no marathons. That's what, that was the question. <laughs> well, <laughs> I uh, right now, don't have any Ironman triathlons on the horizon. I've mm-hmm. got this book coming out. So I'm focusing on that. I have, uh, 
signed up for the New York City Marathon in November. Oh, so that's cool. that is something I have that I'm looking forward to, and hopefully we'll be able to get some time to train for that. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Yes. And how about you? Do you got any coming up? Uh, I got a book coming out, too. Yeah. That's my, uh, <laughs> my ultra-distance event right now. I'm with you, know? you there, yeah. I'm not signed up for any races. I mean, I, I get out and I train every morning and every day, and I stay fit and active. But um, it's not like at that level where you know it's razor-sharp or completely focused the way that it has to be at least in my mind for me to show up at one of those races which i should just get over myself really you know, like i <laughs> yeah, mean it's true when you when you're training for a race like <clears throat> the kind of races you've done you really do need to to be very disciplined and really on it you know and i think it, my I'm, my personality is hardwired to kind of approach them that way but i don't want to show up half cocked you know like i want to be full on but i know there's a lot like look at dean Carnazes or any they, he shows up and runs marathons all the time he runs them with people he just he just goes out and has fun and i think that maybe i'm depriving myself of that kind of an experience but i also feel pressure like also being being the vegan athlete or a vegan athlete like i feel like if i show up i gotta be on point you know what yeah. i mean because people are like oh well you know if he doesn't race to his level or you know what we expect him to do then that is a reflection of his lifestyle or his diet and so that that kind of plays into my thinking and screws my head up a little bit there there is pressure especially for an elite athlete like you now for me i'm just a lay person so if i finish an iron man that's good yeah but you gotta finish you can't be like a dnfing you know what i mean that that, you do that you're the guy from time magazine so (laughs) but i I don't need to finish it way fast i just need to finish it reasonably well you know whereas you got to kind of push it to another level and so i I totally hear that i know but i want to get back i mean because it's i haven't raced since 2011 you know it's silly I can't like, there's always going to be things in life that are busy that are, you know, think life's getting busier and busier and that's a good thing. And that's a gift. And, you know, it's a result of, of, you know, working really hard in this movement and all that kind of stuff. But like, I keep thinking, oh, well, that day will come where things will calm down and I can train again. He's like, I don't think that day's coming. <laughs> well, but, <laughs> you know. but in the meantime, so, you, know, you rate, like you say, you maintain a certain level of fitness. And, yeah, and then also yeah. then there's the whole balance thing, you know, because, you know, that's know, the thing. It is. You know, when I was doing the Ironman training, you know, it was hard to get time for many other things. And, yeah. You know, so I think a balance where you're maintaining a fitness and, and, and healthy and everything, but also doing other, in, you know, inspiring positive things is right. is a good feels right right well now. if you can figure out how to balance everything let me know because I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely not good at that it's yeah. a process and i'm still working on it too <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a process so this is exciting the book comes out april 7th april 7th yeah, that's right it's exciting i love the book it's beautiful um and it's interesting it's you know because it's not um it's not, uh, you know, it's not just a cookbook. It's not just a nonfiction kind of primer. It's sort of a whole bunch of different things. Like you really get into this lifestyle. You get into how you build Farm Sanctuary, um, you know, the value system upon which Farm Sanctuary was built and the principles upon which you conduct your life. And then all these great, like very easily digestible tips and tools to kind of, you know, direct your direct your own lifestyle. And then it follows up with all these, you know, amazing 
vegan recipes. Beautiful it's great. Recipes. You know, beautiful. so yeah. yeah, the book's really beautiful. The photography is amazing. You should be really proud. It's, it's exciting stuff. You know, I'm very, very happy with it and very excited for it to get out on the world. And uh, it's doing very well so far online in the pre-sales. Mm-hmm. And um, we've got some great endorsements. And, you know, it really is about living a lifestyle that you can feel good about. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, with Farm Sanctuary, one of our organizational values is we speak to people where they are on their own journeys and encourage people to, you know, each day try to do a little better and try to live in a way that is aligned with your own compassionate values. Because most people are humane. And also we encourage people to eat food that nourishes us instead of food that makes us sick. Like, unfortunately, mm-hmm. most people do in the United States. And and then the book has these, like, 100 incredible vegan recipes from some of the top chefs and cookbook authors around the country and restaurant owners, you know, Tal Ronan, mm-hmm. for example, from Crossroads has mm-hmm. some recipes in there and it's, it's, it's beautiful. And this lifestyle is not about deprivation. It's about living inspired and living in a way that is, you feel good about it and others do too. And it becomes contagious. You know, mm-hmm. that's the other really neat thing about it. You know, when you go out and have this great food with other people, they enjoy it and it's, you don't give anything up. You actually embrace an ethic and healthy food and just a healthy way of looking at the world with respect for other animals in nature instead of, you know, how we grow up exploiting other animals in nature and really without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is just about being respectful and living mindfully and living in alignment with our own values and interests. Mm-hmm. And you kind of lay out these values in the book. I mean, you have, what is it, five values <clears throat> that you kind of orient around, you know, orient the book around, the spine of the book around. I mean, you know, yeah. can we get into those a little bit? Sure. Yeah. The five tenets are, are, first of all, to live in alignment with your values, you know, because to- so often people live in a dissonant way where they're, for example, eating meat from these factory farms. And they really hate what happens on factory farms, but they're still eating this meat and supporting the system. So there's a dissonance. And so sometimes they will say, don't tell me I don't want to know about it. It's too upsetting. So that's a right. I think it's, it's almost like it's not even that that they don't like what's going on. Like they don't think about it. There's a, there's a conscious effort to not think about it. And so they don't think about it. So it doesn't even occur to them. Yes. You know, exactly. it doesn't come up consciously. Right. And there's an interest in not having it come up because it's painful and difficult and ugly to look at. And also, I think people are afraid that there is not a solution. They feel that they have to eat meat. And if they have to, they don't want to recognize just how harmful it is. And Mm -hmm. But the fact is, we can live without eating meat. We can live without eating animal foods. And that, to me, is a very positive news, and people can act on it. Right. Well, just kind of camping out on this issue right here for a little bit. Um, You know, I come across, I have friends that are, you know, health conscious, and we have lively discussions about diet and lifestyle. I have one friend in common, very good friend, uh, and, and he always says to me, you know, I'm not vegan, but you know, I live super healthy, and uh, and you know, I make sure that that the meat that I eat, you know, like I don't eat meat tons of meat, but when I do eat meat, I make sure that it's that it's um, sustainably raised, it's it's humanely raised, it's grass fed, it's all these good things, um, and and that gives him a certain comfort level with. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I think it, it's like, an, it's like a, a pressure valve release on that dissonance for him. And I say, mm-hmm. well, we can talk about that. I mean, I'm not so sure, you know, when you talk about humane, you know, like when you're talking about humanely raised, like, what does that mean? Like, what does that actually mean? Like, what are we talking about? Like, he's like, well, I know the farmer. And I'm like, all right, well, have you gone to the farm? Like, do you know what's actually going on? I mean, at the end of the day, the animal's still 
slaughtered for your food. So, but let's set that part aside and just look at the living conditions of of the animal. Like, what are we really talking about here? And I, and that's not a comfortable discussion. And, you know, know, asking the questions is important, mm -hmm. you know, asking the questions because sometimes people will say, well, they're raised humanely and they want to believe it. And so will somewhat delude them. The inquiry ends there though. Just because there's a label or somebody told them that that's the case, then that's the that's because that's okay. I can hang my hat on that, and I really don't have to look any further. That's very true. And then, like you say, that you know, as a pressure release valve for the dissonance, when mm-hmm. it's still an obs- obfuscation of reality in many cases, because so many of these humane labels sound a lot better than they are, mm-hmm. and. Producers know that, and marketers and retailers know that, and they actually sell this meat for a much higher price because the market and the demand for it is so strong compared to that for factory farming. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there is this ongoing discussion, and <clears throat> a lot of people do say they eat certain kinds of meat, but I don't think they really think that much about it still. And mm-hmm. and so asking the questions is, you know, do you really know how they're raised um, is, I think, very valuable and very important to create awareness and an understanding of the reality of it. Because even if an animal is raised in a very nice situation, they are still sent to the slaughterhouse and they still do have their throats cut and they still want to live ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so we've you know, taken their life from them. For what good? And, and I would suggest that this is not only bad for the animal, but it is bad for us. You know, can you imagine what it would be like to have a job where what you were doing, you know, for hours every day was, you know, stringing up animals by their back leg and taking a knife and cutting their throat. I mean, that's not good for people either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a couple observations on that. I mean, first of all, getting back to this this sort of idea of labels, like whether it's humanely raised or cage-free or farm fresh or what, I, I mean, if it's certified organic, that means one thing. I'm not sure it quite means what it used to mean. It's a very politicized um, term that has, you know, sort of been co-opted by big food companies because for the very reasons you just mentioned, which is that they know that if they have that label on there, they can charge more or that's a coveted thing to the consumer. Um, But some of these other labels are not regulated at all. Like, I mean, is if something says... Uh, well, certainly farm fresh means nothing, but like cage free or natural. Like, natural is yeah. a really good one. Natural means nothing. Um, I mean. And even grass fed. I mean, is, gra- is grass fed, I would imagine, is kind of a sliding scale. Like, uh, you know, every farm's different. Is there any kind of oversight or like minimum, you know, kind of requirement for something being called grass fed? It is a sliding scale. And oftentimes there are accommodations for, well, it's snowing this time of year, so therefore they can't be eating grass so we can feed them something else. So they can actually be grain-fed for part of the year? Well, I think different certifiers will allow different things. But I think with grass-fed, you know, you think of an animal out on pasture grazing. And so they will... Beautiful, just acres and acres of pastoral... (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And and most grass-fed animals are fed grain towards the end of their lives. Um, There are some that will feed them forage or some hay or something that is not grain, but oftentimes they are fed grain. Why is that? Because they grow faster, the meat is marbled, it is something that more consumers expect as opposed to a more tough, uh, muscly meat, Mm -hmm. you know, so... You know, grain grain is commonly used for grass-fed animals. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, 
but and I don't want to get too far afield because we're just on the first of the five, <laughs> you know, five tenets yeah. or whatever. But this is really interesting. I mean, I think that another reason why uh, people really gravitate towards this idea of grass-fed is there's also this um, built-in uh, idea that somehow because it's grass-fed, it's more ecologically sustainable. <clears throat> and when I think about that, I think, well, I guess – Sort of like if you just sort of don't think it through, I could see why you could go, oh, yeah, that makes sense because it's it's a smaller farm. It's not a huge industrialized factory farm. But factory farms, if they do one thing well, it's create economies of scale. Like that animal is only going to live the shortest life possible. They're going to feed it the least amount of resources and water, et cetera, to get it to the point where they can turn it into food. Whereas a grass-fed animal is going to live longer. It's going to require more water. It's going to take up more land and it's going to require more feed because it's on the planet longer before it turns into food. So to me, that makes it sound like it's less sustainable. Yeah. Well, Am I crazy? Is that what's, what's going on? Well, you need a lot more land for grazing than you do for raising animals more intensively in the factory farming system. I mean, both of them are very wasteful in their own ways. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that also happens on these extensive grass-fed type of operations is you still overcrowd the space. So you have grass that sometimes is overgrazed and big problems with that. And you mm -hmm. have also manure from animals that get into waterways and into natural systems when, again, they're packed too densely, which is common because mm -hmm. it's profitable. And you also have federal lands that are rented by ranchers at far below the market price, right. which is a whole other subsidy mm -hmm. for this industry. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the way it works now is most cattle start on, on the range, and they're born at these cow-calf operations, which tend to be fairly small. But then they are sold and go to feedlots where they're fattened on grain. That's the typical life of a beef animal. And so the industry will say, well, my animals are grass-fed. And technically it's true at first because mm -hmm. they start their life on a pasture with being born to a cow uh, outside. But then they go to a feedlot. And that's what happens to animals that are exploited for beef. Mm -hmm. um, other animals like chickens and pigs are much more intensively raised from the morning they they're, the day they come out onto this earth till the day they're killed. They're you know born in hatcheries if they're chickens. Um, they're they're born in these confined enclosures if they're pigs, and they never go outside, never even see nature. So the industries vary quite widely, uh, but in every case they are inefficient because mm -hmm. growing plant foods to feed to animals requires a lot more energy than just growing plant foods and eating them directly. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the big environmental reality of it. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes the beef industry will say that cattle out grazing are using land that we can't use for anything else anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but to that, I would suggest we don't necessarily need to use every single inch of land. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we should use arable land to grow food for people to eat instead of using arable land to go grow corn and soybeans to feed livestock. Right. And that would just be much more efficient. So then we don't need to go into these marginal lands that the beef industry says we that they're using in an efficient way, when in fact it isn't efficient because they're overgrazing in many cases, they're disrupting ecosystems and it's a system that you know needs to be just completely rethought, and and it ultimately boils down to consumers, though, just not mm -hmm. buying this stuff, whether mm -hmm. it be grass-fed or factory-farmed or quote natural. Which, what natural beef can come from cows who are implanted with hormones, raised in feedlots, 
and fed grain. Mm -hmm. So this term natural is completely bogus. Right, right, right. Well, when it becomes profitable for these companies to do something different, they will do so. Just like the way you're seeing dairy dairy company investment in plant-based milks, because they see the market shifting in that direction. Huge, totally. Um, But just kind of back on this sort of (laughs) sustainability rant. I mean, (laughs) who's the guy who, I mean, forget about the just sort of the efficiencies of whole it's it's so insanely inefficient the whole thing is ridiculous the idea of how we raise these animals for food the the amount of resources it requires and the footprint that it creates uh you know on our planet and on our economy etc you know all the way down the line like it doesn't make any sense at all we're just doing it because this is the way we've always done it you know but if you if some alien had landed here and said this is how you're creating food for humans like that doesn't make any sense at all you know like but we just we don't have we don't have that perspective and i think like we were talking before the podcast about the documentary cowspiracy i had those filmmakers on the on the podcast a while ago you've seen the movie but those, they do a really good job of kind of elucidating all of that where you can kind of see like yeah this is kind of nutty right? it's totally nutty <laughs> yeah. just how inefficient and backwards this animal farming business mm-hmm. is and how you know mainstream environmental groups really aren't addressing it and our society really has not addressed it but hopefully mm-hmm. that'll change and i think cowspiracy is going to play a big role yeah it's going to be exciting um you know, still so few people have seen it, but that's going to change soon. There's some yeah. things afoot with that movie, which are pretty exciting. Uh, and uh, and hopefully a lot of Americans will be watching it soon. We'll have more information on that later. But yeah. one thing that, that was raised in that movie, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this, is that idea of there's this other idea that, uh, that we can use um, grazing to uh, – to, um, What's the word? Like Sequester right, carbon or something? Or? Well, well, we, we have this problem with soil depletion, right? And that mm. a solution to that is to, is to graze cattle on grasslands. And somehow, as a result of that, we're putting nutrients back into the soil and that this is actually a solution rather than a problem. You know, Are I you think, familiar with that argument? I, I am, yeah. You know, I think sometimes what happens is we look at one situation that is just terrible, like cattle overgrazing and despoiling mm. You know, all the vegetation, ending it with lots of topsoil erosion and polluted rivers and waterways. And so that's bad. So we lighten up the amount of grazing that happens. So now the cattle are still grazing, but they're not totally wrecking it. So compared to that totally wrecked situation, it's better. Mm -hmm. But is it optimal and is it best is, I think, the question that needs to be asked. And from my perspective, it's absolutely not the best. I think having a native ecosystem with a native species is the best. Mm-hmm. You know, all farm animals in North America have been imported with the exception of the turkey. All of them have been brought mm-hmm. here. And so we're creating false ecosystems to maintain them and to grow them in by the billions, literally. And in the case of cattle, you know, rather than having them running around the prairies, it'd be nice if there were bison running around the prairies mm-hmm. with their natural predators and their, you know, in the natural ecosystem. And that I think would be the ideal and it's a long way down the road, mm-hmm. for sure. But it's um, sometimes with industry, they will contr- compare one bad system with another bad system that's not quite as bad and say it is an improvement, which it would be compared to the really bad one, but it's mm-hmm. still not the ideal. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes I think that you know we sort of get into these boxes of selection A or selection B without recognizing there's C, D, E, and all the way to Z. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's also <laughs> there's this idea that, that, uh, that if everybody suddenly 
went vegan over you know overnight which of course would never happen like oh there would just be animals everywhere you know <laughs> right. like we would it would be uncontrollable we must eat these animals right. this is population control and it's like no you don't understand we're raising these animals specifically for food if we turn the volume down on that or shut it down there's not going to be all these animals because the production line would stop Absolutely. Right? I mean, these are not animals that are just we're, we're like we're like wrangling them out in the prairie to come into the feedlot. Like these are, yeah. you know, bred from day one to be sort of these receptacles of energy that humans can then consume. Exactly right. And we mass produce them. We artificially inseminate them. In the case of turkeys, they've been so genetically altered that they can't even reproduce naturally anymore. So all mm -hmm. commercially raised turkeys are now products of artificial insemination. So yeah, these are animals whose lives we completely control. We've created genetic breeds for specific purposes like chickens to grow so fast and so large um, that their hearts and lungs have a hard time supporting that growth rate. They reach slaughter weight in like six weeks. So these are very mm -hmm. young animals. And even though they are killed at slaughter so young, uh, every year millions still die of heart attacks because their hearts can't support that massive growth rate. But it's still profitable to the industry because they're raising them literally by the billions. That's crazy that an animal would have a heart attack at six weeks old yeah, because it's being fattened so quickly. Yes, their hearts and lungs cannot support that incredible growth rate. And then also they have a hard time standing because they're so heavy that their legs cannot support mm -hmm. that weight. And they have been genetically bred to have large breasts because breast meat is the most profitable. So they also are anatomically disfigured, so they kind of tilt forward. And so that's another stressor on their legs and on their bodies and on their hearts. So these are the kind of animals that we have mass produced, mm -hmm. and they are not about to overrun the world. <laughs> you know, they're completely dependent on us, and um, and they're not native species. They can't. I mean, a lot of them can't even reproduce naturally, right? Right. Absolutely. They've been sort of that's been like bred out of them. Well, in the case of turkeys, uh, their breasts are so large that they cannot mount to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So that's the the situation there. In the case of others. Um, they still can reproduce naturally, but it's it's not an easy process for for some of them. Mm -hmm. And for in the case of chickens, for example, that are raised for meat, um, the roosters are so big that they will oftentimes rip up the backs of the hens when they jump on them. And so they now have to use certain contraptions to prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. So it's an industry that has created animals for specific production traits right. with, without recognizing animal well-being without really any thought about other consequences than to get as much meat to the market as quickly and cheaply as possible. Mm -hmm. and, and the animals are just commodities in their mind, not living, feeling creatures. So there's this mentality, this lack of respect, a lack of understanding for animals. And I think it also feeds over into our lack of respect for nature, our lack of respect for consumers, where mm -hmm. the industry will sell us things, you know, making statements that are not true and just look at the marketplace and human beings even as like what would be Like what, what's an example of that? Of how we're misled? Right. Well, I mean, you know, the advertising campaigns, you know, beef is, you know, does a body good mm -hmm. or... No, or, that's milk. Or, or, or no. Okay. <laughs> Beef's what's for dinner. Okay. I, I mixed and my... pork <laughs> is the other white meat, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so milk does a body yes. good. Yes. And then also sort of this... Uh, get your misrepresentations straight. I know. I get, I get them all mixed up. Um, the dairy one, uh, this, this notion that we need to drink cow's milk to get calcium so we don't get osteoporosis. 
um, is not true. You know, we drink a lot of cow's milk in this country and we get a lot of osteoporosis. So these are the kinds of misunderstandings that are actively promoted <clears throat> to pro pro promote the consumption of these products. And one of the things that the dairy industry will do, like in the school lunch program, for example, is it will say that kids need to be drinking more cow's milk because it's better for them than soda pop. So here you have another example where you take a couple of bad things right. and say this one's not as bad as that one. Right. Water would be better than both, for example, <laughs> you know? Uh, Coca-Cola, is that better than Red Bull or I know, is that right? a draw? It, it could be yeah. that kind of thing, right? It could be like, you know, this, mm -hmm. you know, and they could come up with a study shoot too, probably to show that Coke is better than something. And, and it's therefore truly it's, like a scene out of idiocracy. Did you ever see that? I, I, <laughs> and, uh, I didn't, I, but yeah. I've heard it. It's, uh, yeah, that's amazing. Um, well, I mean, I lost my train of thought. Continue for a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just about how, how these misrepresentations and how yeah. people go along with them. And we're really creatures of habit. So we do things that are put in front of us and we eat mindlessly and, 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 and eat in a way that is not in our best interest. And we're killing ourselves by eating meat, milk, and eggs in this mm -hmm. country and then having to take medication for heart problems and then to have surgery in some cases. And a lot of that could be prevented. Right. I, I remember what I was going to say, which is that, you know, even if uh, you remove the ethical argument out of it completely and just look at um, the health ramifications of how this, these, these animals are raised to end up on your plate. I mean, just let's just focus on the antibiotics, you know, mm. that, that end up in the meat and, and what's, what that is doing oh. in terms of antibiotic resistance and all kinds of health problems that we're seeing. Absolutely. Well, I, I, you know, we don't actually know the full impacts. And I think there's actually an interest on the part of agribusiness and the pharmaceutical companies to not really look. Mm -hmm. You know, because once you look and you investigate and you recognize that these are the specific problems associated with these practices, then you can become liable and potentially have to pay some court, uh, mm -hmm. you know, findings on that. So, um the industry, it's sort of a don't look, don't find approach in many yeah, cases. Yeah, instead of like trying to invest money into a study that will establish that something is good for you or safe or will combat some disease or cure it, the idea is we're consciously going to not do that so that we can't say that we know that it's bad, right? Exactly. There's Kathy, exactly. you should take hey, pictures. It's true. It's true. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, this is a system that's so entrenched and so dug in and the pharmaceutical industry gets you coming and going. They get you on the farms. You know, most of the antibiotics produced in the U.S. are fed to farm animals to keep them alive and growing in these horrible conditions. And then when consumers eat too much of these animal foods, we have heart disease and other mm -hmm. problems like that. So then we need heart medication. Mm -hmm. So the pharmaceutical companies make more money there. Right. And so there's a real interest in maintaining the status quo instead of challenging it and looking for real solutions. But those are starting to come up now. And people are seeing that you can reverse heart disease. You can reverse your risk of cancer. You can reverse diabetes. And it's all through food. You mm -hmm. know, you know the, the old adage, let food by thy medicine, is so poignant and so timely. And it's becoming more and more resonant right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's beautiful to see people actually... <clears throat> taking that and making it work in their own lives. Uh, because it, it's hard. It's hard to step out of the system. You know, you're talking about, you know, being mindful of your choices and, and the foods that you're eating. And 
And uh, we were talking with Dan before the podcast about changing your environment as opposed to trying to change your your behavior because so many of the decisions that we make, specifically food decisions, are unconsciously driven, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at the extent to which those decisions are made unconsciously, and then you look at this perfectly vertically integrated system where Monsanto is patenting seeds, and those are the seeds that the farmers have to grow, and then they use Roundup on that, and then that, then the farmers become indentured servants to these large corporations and have to keep producing these foods, even knowing that they'd rather be an organic farmer, and then we're eating these foods, and we're, lying, we're misrepresented about what's in them, and then we get sick, and then we need to go back to those companies, you know, and it, it just goes around and around and around, and... So aggravating, yeah. so maddening, and, and so unnecessary and so unhealthy. And each of us, though, has the power to make new types of choices. And, but it's tough when you're the only one, you know, and when everybody's eating a certain way, being different is not easy. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's becoming more common for people to challenge and question the existing food system and to go to farmer's markets mm -hmm. or even to plant and grow some of their own food. Um, and... We're in the midst of a food movement now, I think, where um, there are more and more opportunities and more and more people recognizing the need to change because um, the way things are and have been for a number of years are just so unhealthy and mm. disturbing and harmful to our planet. And, you know, I think it's got to, it is changing. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's no question that it is. There's no question that it is. And I think what's great about it is, <clears throat> there are so many points of entry for people to embrace it and learn about it. Like if the environment is your thing and that's what motivates you and that's what inspires you and, and, and provokes you into a sense of activism or action, then where do you go? Well, yes. you can go to eating vegan, you can go to being plant-based or if it's, you know, the ethical arguments, if it's the animal rights argument, if it's the health argument, if it's, there are so many ways to, it, but it's sort of like, all roads lead to Rome. You yes. know, they all keep coming back to this because it's really the one way of eating and, and the one lifestyle that really kind of embraces all of these things. Like, yeah. you know, so for me, if anything, like I get frustrated that like when I see other people having difficulty, you know, grappling with the idea of it. Yeah, it's, it's just so different than what most of us grew up with. And mm -hmm. we are such creatures of habit. And... Logically, it makes all the sense in the world, but I think people are emotional and people are afraid of something different and afraid of change. And, and that's why I think if things are convenient and in front of, of you and, and if other people are doing it, people are more likely to do that, whatever mm -hmm. it is. So just having more fruits and vegetables more widely available and normalizing the idea of eating veggie burgers instead of hamburgers um, will create a lot of change and we are starting to see it but you know change is scary and i think we're now facing more and more opportunities though for people to be less scared because you know we are social animals we rub off on those around us we do what those around us do so the more people there are who are eating well and eating plant-based that's going to rub off and i think ultimately the big change is going to happen through ripples in the grassroots, mm -hmm. person to person, individual to individual, sharing podcasts, sharing books, sharing information, sharing recipes, uh, and ultimately helping each other live better. And, you know, that feels pretty darn good. And mm -hmm. I think most people would agree and would like to do that <clears throat> instead of living in denial 
and li- eating food that's not good for us and then having to get medication. Mm-hmm. We could live, and, and so this is a lifestyle that just feels so darn good and it makes so much sense. And and I think it's contagious. More and more people are picking up on it and are trying to live in a way that they feel good about. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious 
Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm just looking at at the list of uh, the other tenets of the farm sanctuary <laughs> life. And we've kind of hit on that. I mean, it's in, engage in a mindful connection with animals, engage in a mindful connection with your food, eat plants for your health, eat plants for the health of the earth. You know, these are all things that we've been talking about. It's a beautiful thing. And I think it does go to, you know, that idea of the environment changing, like the environment being your interpersonal kind of immediate environment uh, to help inform, uh, you know, these lifestyle shifts that almost will happen unconsciously just because people around you are doing things differently. And, you know, and you see it, I mean, even with things like just the fact that Whole Foods, you know, there's more Whole Foods restaurants and whether you're buying much of your food in there or not, just by going into that environment and seeing it, I think has an impact on the way people think about their relationship to the foods that they're eating. Absolutely. It's, it's an example mm -hmm. of a different sort of more mindful way of consuming food in this country. And, you know, food is perhaps our most intimate connection with the earth. You know, what we eat literally becomes us. And if we eat junk, that has an impact. Uh, physically, but also I would say emotionally and spiritually, you know, our food affects our brains and, you know, we eat a certain way in it and it, and it causes, it, it can impair our thinking, I believe, you know, too much sugar or whatever. Um, so, you know, our food choices have profound impacts personally, but also globally. And mm -hmm. the great news about it though, is everybody every day can make choices that can make a big difference. And that's where I get a lot of you know, optimism from is the fact that each of us can make a difference. You know, in many cases, you think about wars and horrible things happening around the world, and we, it's pretty hard to figure out what we can do about it. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to all the issues surrounding our food, you know, our own health, other animals, the environment, the well-being of the planet, climate change, all these things, we can all do something by choosing to eat more plant foods. And and that's the empowering part of it. It's just mm -hmm. an empowering um inspiring kind of movement and i'm so so happy about the way that happens right 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 and i like your 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 choice of words there by eating more plant foods instead of being kind of you know definitive that you must it must be this way you must adhere to some perfectionist ideal about the way that you're eating and living your life otherwise you can't be a member of my team <laughs> you know yeah, like totally and 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 we talked about this last time a little bit but i think it's a really important issue and i think it's something that <clears throat> either turns people off or scares them, you know, this idea of having to do it perfect. And listen, you know, like just by the virtue that we're living in the United States, we're, we're you know, rubber stamping stuff we don't agree to if we pay taxes. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we're part of a system. Mm -hmm. There's only so much of that we can control. Mm -hmm. We have control over, you know, certain aspects of how we live our life on a day-to-day -day basis. We can be more conscientious and conscious about those choices that we make. Um, and that applies to, you know, the food that we're eating, the clothes that we're wearing, and all those sorts of things. But we're also human beings. We're right. fallible. We're bred to be fallible. We make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. And, and you know, I, I see all the time people who, who try to take a stab at this, and then, you know, a couple weeks in, they'll, you know, find themselves eating something maybe they didn't think that they wanted to, or you know, mm -hmm. and then they just say, well, that was too hard. I couldn't do it. 
you know that that life i can't i can't live up to that standard yeah nobody's perfect not even the most vegan vegan is perfect mm -hmm. and 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 i really see it as an aspiration not a, a list of ingredients not an end point it is an ongoing process of trying to do as best you can on a regular basis and you know when if you look at it as ingredients it's impossible you know for example i try to eat organic produce but it might be grown with animal manure. So mm -hmm. technically, is that vegan or not? You know, so so it's not. <laughs> well, were some were some you know bugs killed in the process of tilling the soil to you know exactly probably I mean, so. So you can't live without <clears throat> yeah, causing any harm. Like, you know, so, yeah. do, so, so it's really an aspiration. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we just try to do the best we can and be honest about the fact that it's impossible to to live without causing any harm. And, mm -hmm. and, and, but just try to do as well as you can and inspire others and encourage others to do as well as they can. And if somebody makes a mistake, don't spend hours and hours slamming them over it. Just acknowledge it and try to move forward in a positive way. And, and cause I think most people do want to live in a compassionate way, mm -hmm. in a way they feel good about and, and, and need support whenever they make steps and try to move in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an evolution. It is. I call it an evolution revolution. I like it, you man. Know? Totally. Because, uh, I mean, I was, it was funny when I listened to our podcast we did a year and a half ago, and I was like, wow, you know, I, I, like, I'm, I'm in a different place than I was when I was asking you those questions. And I think that, that you were the first person that I had on the show that was really coming from an animal rights perspective. And I had a little bit of trepidation about, about introducing that to the audience and, no, I feel differently now. Like you know, I, this is much more important to me now, and and it's not a, it's not just about my health, and you know, there's other things at play that are really worth discussing, if not more important to discuss. And <clears throat> it was interesting to compare, you know, where I was then to to where I am now, and uh, and that continues. You know what I mean? Like I just saw some videos recently of. Like I'm not on the internet, like looking at, at at interviews of animals being, you know, tortured in some slaughterhouse. Like that's I don't do that, you know. Like I'm I don't actively avoid it, but I'm not like seeking it out. Like, yeah. and I saw a, I saw a video of how they treat uh, the animals in a shearing uh, facility in New Zealand where they're making wool, right? Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. and I always thought, oh, we just we're giving these animals a haircut. It's like no big deal. And I have a whole different perspective on that now, yeah. you know, yeah. like yeah. that's the next thing for me. Like, wow, I need to think about that a little bit more than I ever did before. Yeah. And that continues, you know, there'll be something, you know, next year that I have to think about that I'm not thinking about right now. No, that's part of this movement. And that's mm -hmm. so beautiful is it's an ongoing process of learning. And, and same with me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to eat healthier because <laughs> still mm -hmm. yeah. I, I've made some progress there, but there's more I could do. Um, and, you know, staying in good shape, you know, not nearly as much as you do in terms of the, the exercise and all that and don't compete nearly at the level you do. But, you know, doing the Ironman was really an, a, a very satisfying process. You know, you, you have a goal you, and you go for it and you do it. Mm -hmm. So that really felt good. And um, so, you know, your advice on that was very helpful. So we learned mm -hmm. from each other, too. Mm -hmm. You know, there's things that um, if you haven't done something, it's scary because it's you you're, you don't know how to mm -hmm. and having somebody give you advice and, and support who has been down that path makes it a lot easier and, and i think that's a big part of what our movement is about is providing support and and information and help for folks who want to make choices that are again more compassionate more healthful more life-affirming more ecologically sustainable 
um, and where we live on this planet in, in a respectful way that doesn't harm others to the extent we can. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible to cause no harm, but we do the as as well as we can, and, and we help each other in that right, way. Right, right, right. But but also, we all, I think it's important to also acknowledge that vegans can be their own worst enemy, uh-huh. you know? And it's like, you know, a lot of people and friends of mine are like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear about that. Like, they just, they bug me, they annoy me, I'm turned off. Like, I don't want anything to do with it. You're cool. I like you. You know, you're my friend, but like, I don't need the, those people. I don't want those people around me. So what is going on? Like, how can we address that? How can we change that social dynamic to kind of move forward with a better yeah. foot forward? Yeah, well, I think, you know, vegans understandably get very angry about the horrible things that are happening. And that anger is fully justified. Um, but how it is expressed to others sometimes pushes others away. And I think it's important to be able to communicate in a way that informs and engages instead of pushes away. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the finger wagon vegan is too commonly been uh, uh, the experience people have. Um, and I think it's important, I think, for folks in the vegan movement to ask questions, you know, sometimes like, well, what do you feel like about these animals and how they're raised instead of telling somebody, oh, that's terrible and you're doing bad things. Um, I think just engaging in a discussion is a very important way to change the dynamic a little bit and to um, encourage people to think through these issues themselves instead of telling people what to think. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I think, a problem in many different movements and in many different ways and in the political system for sure. Um, And discourse has to be conducted in a way that is respectful, that raises everybody's thinking and um, creates more and more understandings and connections between people. And, and vegans, you know, historically who have been, you know, very much a minority uh, and very angered and frustrated by the slow progress or the being dismissed and, and, and the animal abuse being completely ignored, you know, will sometimes react in a very passionate way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they may be right in saying what they're saying, but it, they're not very effective in mm-hmm. connecting with people and raising a discussion. And that's, I think, part of what our movement is now working on. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a very good communicator. You know, not everybody is, can be effective in, in, in getting the point across as well as you can. You're very, very good at that. Um, and, you, and you do it in a way that is very inviting. And I'm sure that that is developed, you know, over the, since 1985, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, began this journey. But I have a theory, uh, and I'm interested in your, in, in your, whether you think this is accurate or not, because I think maybe you're part of this, which is, I think people that, that are vegans from the get-go or become vegans at a very early age tend to be people that I think, um, this is just my wackadoodle theory, but they just come out of the womb like more sensitive than the average person. They're sensitively attuned to their environment in a way that maybe most people aren't. And so when they see, you know, meat on a plate or an animal in, you know, a, a livestock situation, it triggers something in them um, that 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 activates that level of sensitivity and, and creates... Um, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, right and wrong, like that doesn't seem right to me. And, and so what happens is a frustration develops over the years that other people aren't seeing it that way. And that frustration 
develops into justifiably develops into a sense of anger. Like how come I'm the only one who's seeing this? They're not. And then after a while, you're just going to be a pissed off human being. And then your communication is going to reflect that. And you seem like somebody who was probably one of those kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like who was pretty sensitive to these things when maybe the people around you weren't. Mm -hmm. And yet you've seemed to come out, you know, with a different perspective. Well, no, definitely was was very sensitive growing up, and I think most people ultimately are, and and also have an empathy. And when they see somebody else hurt, whether it's a human or another animal, there's a natural reaction that is sharing the pain, really, mm-hmm. and and not feeling good for the other and wishing the other would be okay. Um, and there, like a heightened empathy. There may be that as well, yeah. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I think you know psychologists and sociologists would have to really dig into this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, but. I think the movement is very interesting, and and I think everybody, whether they're animal people or not, has empathy and could have, but it's sort of like a muscle too. The more you use it, I think the stronger Mm -hmm. it can get. And the more you do certain things, and in the case of vegans in the early days, maybe yelling was the pattern of behavior, uh, the frustration that would come out in certain ways. Um, I think that as our movement has matured and grown, you know, more and more of us are talking about being effective and and what is effective and being really conscious of how things are communicated. Um, but I think what makes somebody first an animal person is a very interesting question. And I think a sensitivity is part of it and an empathy is part of it and also an interest in actually pursuing that. Mm-hmm. Um, too often, I think people have an empathy or a, a feeling about something and they're told to do something else. And they will do the something else. And so there's also an integrity to it, to maintaining that sense of compassion and empathy mm-hmm. and interest in, in, in following your heart. Right. In other words, what you're saying is we all kind of have it, but it gets eroded. And the people that stick with it are the people that had a certain sense of self, maybe that was like a little bit stronger. It's possible it was a sense of mm-hmm. self, or it might also have been sort of a less of a sense of the rest of the world. Right, 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 right. Really a, a sort of, you know, a sense of self in some way, mm-hmm. whatever that is, is, whether it's healthy or not is, 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 is another question. Right, but, right. Um, but yeah, I think so. And, um, but I think a sense of, but, but all of us have it. I really do believe that. And, and to the extent that it's awakened and enlivened, um, I think all of us will, will do better. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting to just even think about that. How? Where does this come from? You know, right? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you were supposed to be, uh, you know, like like managing real estate properties, <laughs> right? You know, exactly. Like, you know, did your brothers and sisters end up going into the family business? No, what not of them. Oh, nobody <laughs> did. <laughs> what did they all do? Well, I've got uh, one brother's a philosophy professor. A sister is an animator wow. and teaches animation. Another brother's a musicology professor and. Um, you know, a sister worked at Delta for a while, another one's an actress. So they're doing all kinds of different mm-hmm. things in different parts of the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. Cool. You know, my folks are still in the same house I grew up in, in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. And uh, so I, I get to see them when I come to L.A., which is nice, yeah, too. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what's going on uh, legislatively and in the regulatory field in terms of factory farming, our food system, et cetera. There's some pretty interesting things afoot. Are there not? Yes, there are. Uh, Beginning in around 2000, there was a series of pushes to pass state laws 
to prohibit the inhumane confinement of animals in cages where they can't mm-hmm. turn around. So we succeeded with several initiatives and also some state legislative efforts. Um, recently, um, Steve King, uh, a congressman from Iowa, introduced a bill to undo all of these state protections and to put it under federal jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. He and introduced a federal a federal, a federal bill. Mm-hmm. That's right. And what's ironic about it is that <clears throat> King is a Tea Party guy who is technically against federal oversight of state issues. And mm-hmm. he has somehow now changed that his thinking on that to think the federal government should uh, be in charge of animal welfare and state laws that protect animals from cruelty should not stand and should be superseded by a non-existent federal standard. Well, it's the interest of his constituency. I mean, Iowa is a huge cattle-producing state. Yeah, It's big agriculture, Mm -hmm. big pork, big chicken, big egg. And um, he is representing his in, the interests of those in his state and and their interest you know at least uh, and I when I say interest I it's it's a short-sighted interest in my mind um, it's an interest in maintaining the status quo it's not really an interest in creating a healthy world and a healthy food system you know he wants to maintain well the, it's, he wants to he wants to get reelected that's right yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's short-sighted yeah, yeah I mean, so it's very short-sighted uh-huh. yes he wants to get reelected and there's a lot of money in animal agriculture in mm-hmm. Iowa so if he does the bidding for animal agriculture he will get you know campaign support mm-hmm. and will be reelected as a congressman so what's going on with the bill well it's early on and it doesn't even have a bill number yet but it's going to be introduced and we're going to be fighting it very hard mm-hmm. and i don't know even what it's been labeled as yet but it's something to keep an eye out for it's the second time he's done this he introduced a similar bill in the last congress which we were able to defeat thankfully um it's hard to know what's going to happen in the new congress uh but i am hopeful that we'll also be able to defeat it but the fact mm-hmm. that it's even coming up is discouraging and really speaks to how aligned agribusiness is and how entrenched agribusiness is with our legislative officials mm-hmm. and um, the system. You know, we've got the best government money can buy, you know, and it's money from these industries that want to maintain a particular status quo that serves the interests of, of, of the bottom line, not mm-hmm. the interests of people, not the interests of the earth or in animals or the environment. And, and and this is where you know I ultimately come down to believing that it's going to take people to vote with our dollars and to support different businesses that are not putting people like Steve King in Congress. Um, and so there's a shift that's going to have to happen. But but either that or remove money from politics altogether. So that's what's, true what's the harder road to hoe? It's a good question. <laughs> you know, it's a really like, good question. I don't know the answer uh-huh. to that. But either one of those would be positive. And um, but the way and, the system is now, it's messed up. But should that bill prevail? I mean, just to be clear, that would un- that would basically undermine every single state law that has been passed that that has sort of been in the positive direction of trying to yeah to prevent factory farming, conditions. for example. That's right, right. Mm-hmm. to prevent factory farming. There's a law here in California that makes it illegal to confine egg laying hens, for example, in cages so tightly that they can't even stretch their wings. And then California also passed a law, which we were very happy to see, that makes it illegal to sell eggs in the state of California from factory farm battery cage operations where the hens are packed so tightly they can't stretch their wings. So that is really one of the big contentions that folks in Iowa or egg producers there have. They want to be able to have these factory farmed eggs and sell them to California. Mm -hmm. California said, 
no, you can't do that. And so that's an example of the kind of law that we like to see and that agribusiness does not like. Mm-hmm. And that is the type of thing that would be threatened by this proposal of mm-hmm. Steve King. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And there seems to be forward movement in state laws, but also there's some regression too, like the foie gras thing in California was kind of a yes. move in we, the wrong direction. It was, absolutely. Well, yeah, we were able to pass that law in 2004. It went into effect in 2012 to make it illegal to produce and sell foie gras in California. Mm-hmm. Foie gras is produced by shoving a pipe down the throats of ducks or geese, force feeding them, such a huge quantity of food that their liver gets to be 10 times the normal size. It's then sold as foie gras, which which means fatty liver in French. Um, so we passed the law, it went into effect, and the foie gras industry has been fighting it in court ever since. And they did win a court victory that um, said that the California law could not stand, but the attorney general in California is going to appeal that. And we feel pretty good about the chances of the law ultimately standing. What is it, What was the legal basis that turned it? I'm not even really sure, honestly. <laughs> right. it, was, it was, I think... It had something to do maybe with interstate commerce, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know the specific legal part of it. Um, but our legal people tell me that it's not a that 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 we should be in good shape mm-hmm. when when this is uh, discussed at the appellate court, and uh, hopefully the law will be reinstated, and um, foie gras will again no longer be sellable in California. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And what's going on with ag-gag laws? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's still some of those happening. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. These ag-gag laws are state laws now. I wonder if Steve King would, you know, the the irony is this federal bill would not prevent those. It would only prevent the animal protection laws. It wouldn't Mm -hmm. prevent these ag-gag laws, which make it illegal uh, and and seek to uh, prevent undercover investigations of factory farms. And it's because the factory farming industry is so harmful that they don't want people seeing what they're doing. So these ag-gag laws have now been passed in a handful of states, and they're continuously being proposed in other states. Mm -hmm. We've had a pretty good success rate at being able to kill them, but they keep popping up, and from time to time they pass, and it's, it's unfortunate. It's quite amazing. It doesn't. I don't understand how it passes constitutional muster. I don't think you, you know, know these. They haven't been have, challenged has, yet. Has any? Have none of these have gone to the Supreme Court? Have they? That's right. They've not been challenged yet, and they haven't gone through the court process. But I, I agree with you that I, I cannot see how these would pass muster when it, when it comes to constitutional issues. And so, these things are part of our discussion now, and part mm-hmm. of our world. And it's. You know, the law takes so long to kind of grind its way through, you know, and this again brings me to the marketplace and the importance of voting with our dollars, you know, while also being involved in the political process and supporting the, you know, representatives that we believe in and stuff. But, you know, every day we vote with our dollars and that ultimately has a significant impact that that I think is going to be the biggest impact over time. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. 
Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I think people feel disenfranchised, though. I mean, it's easy to say that, and I say it all the time, too, and I believe it. But I think a lot of people hear that and they just go, yeah, but, you know, who cares what I buy my, you know, spend my money on? Like, so how do we, how do we really engender, uh, you know, people to actually believe that that does make a difference, that they can? Well, they'll feel better if they eat good food instead of feeling (laughs) right, right, you know? But, no, people do feel disenfranchised, Uh I think. And, you know, politically more so, though, I'd say than, you know, in terms of the marketplace and, when it comes to the marketplace, we really do have choices. You know, sometimes they might not be as wide as we would like, but we can choose to buy an apple, for example, instead of buying, you know, a, a, sl- a, one of the, a Slim Jim or one of those like meat things. You know, you can eat something healthy instead of something that is harmful. And so we do have control over that. And, and, and I think you know, there's a lot of things we don't have control over, but we can control what we eat. And small steps lead to more steps and become empowering. You know, I know for myself when I became vegan and, and today as I make food choices, I feel good about certain ones. And then you want to do that again and it, it's empowering. And, but, but, it, but it is sometimes tough to get over the hump. You know, if somebody's in a certain frame of mind and feels like what they do doesn't really matter... Um, you know, it's tough, you know, but little things mm-hmm. start mattering and adding up and becoming big things over time. So our food choices, you know, again, just, in, you know, if you get home and you have a regular habit of eating something that's unhealthy, maybe shifting that and turn it into eating something like a smoothie or an apple or something that is healthy, a little thing like that can pick up steam and turn into something significant over That's time. That's just crazy talk. <laughs> you know, come on. Yeah, I know, right? Who's going to do that? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So the little things like this <clears throat> do make a difference, you know? I think that, that uh, I mean, really, the core of what you're saying and really kind of the core of the, you know, the, 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 the tenets upon which, you know, your book sort of orients um, is really this idea of aligning your actions with your values, like making sure that your actions match up with your words and your actual belief, your belief systems. And I know what it's like to live my life where my words and my actions don't line up. And I know how that feels. And sometimes it's just kind of a low grade feeling that you don't even know something's wrong, but it's just not right. Like Mm -hmm. you don't feel that good. And I know what it feels like to know that Basically, what comes out of my mouth is exactly the way that I'm behaving. And it's a different feeling, you know? And it's kind of a profound spiritual thing. It really is. Um, And it feels really good when you're doing that. And it doesn't matter what, you know, whatever your values are, whatever those are, when you're, when you're, what you're saying and what you're doing are, are, 
in on parallel tracks, there's something special about that. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and I think that, that to the extent that people that are listening can try to move in that direction, um, trying to aspire to that has changed my life. And it doesn't mean that you're going to become an animal activist or you're going to be selling veggie dogs at a Grateful Dead concert. But there's something really amazing about that, that I would implore anybody to kind of ponder for themselves. And I think to the extent that we're talking about the consumer's power to create change by voting with their dollar, I would just say, look around, go to the grocery store, look at all the plant-based milks. Why do you think those exist? That's because people voted with their dollar and they said, you know what? I want a different choice from cow's milk. I want some almond milk. I want those, those, you know, it's because they're profitable businesses and there's a demand for that. And we live in a capitalist consumer society. And so when you're making that statement as a consumer, look what happens, look what follows. And now when you look around, you see Beyond Meat. You see what Ethan Brown is doing with that company, and it's amazing. And you see what Josh Tetrick is doing with Hampton Creek. And the recent thing that we probably could talk about, which is amazing, is this lawsuit with Unilever and Heilman's mayonnaise. I mean, incredible, right? Well, they're feeling threatened by this plant-based mayonnaise that's out hitting the market in thousands of different outlets. Because people have voted with their dollar and said, I want to try this just mayo or, you know, what is, mayo, it's called yeah. just mayo. Yep. Uh, and they came up with this cockeyed, ridiculous legal argument to sue them over that just blew up in their faces on a PR level. It sure did. And then they dropped the lawsuit. And right. so just mayo continues to get out to the people. And when people buy it, they're supporting a different kind of food system, a, a startup plant-based company taking on Unilever, mm-hmm. you know? So this is great progress, I think. Yeah, and I think just for the listener out there to kind of paint the picture a little bit more fully, uh, I don't know what the what the market cap is on mayonnaise, but it's the number one condiment. And, and the amount of money in the mayonnaise business is like insane. Like it's just billions of dollars you know, being spent on mayonnaise. Amazing. And so Josh, you know, has this idea of creating a plant-based mayonnaise and he he treats this like a tech startup. They have this office in San Francisco, like in that kind of south of market area. What, have you visited there? Yeah, I think yeah. it's really cool it's like when you go in there. scientists in there figuring out yeah, how to take It's like and so, yeah. one big room where you walk in and there's like that big table where all the young people are on laptops, you know, like every startup. And then there's these st- long steel tables right behind them where working right alongside each other are crazy you know, chemists and like, you know, I don't know what these guys, like protein genius, protein geniuses and, yeah. looking through microscopes and coming up with, you know, crazy ways of, of, you know, using plants to make food. And right next to them are like chefs and culinary experts trying to figure out how to make it taste good and how to create the right texture for it. And, and they're, they're really like, it's, it's kind of amazing to see. And it's all, ha- it's literally in one big giant room. They're all working together. Yeah. But it is just one room. Yes. I mean, this whole company is really operating out of like this tiny little office that doesn't even have like a sign on the door. Yeah. And Unilever, which is the parent company of Heilman's Mayonnaise, which is the market leader, uh, starts to get threatened by Just Mayo because Just Mayo suddenly is in Walmart and it's in Costco and this is for real. And people uh, are starting to buy it because it's cheaper and it's arguably healthier and it doesn't use any animal products. And so it becomes a no brainer. It's more efficiently produced. It uses less resources. That's why it costs less. 
it's it's just an obvious choice. And so they sue them and say, you can't do this because the legal definition of mayo means- Or mayonnaise. Mayonnaise says that it, it has eggs in it, right? Or something that's, like that, Yeah, that's right, right yeah. And they're like, yeah, but the whole point of our business is that it doesn't. That's that's the exactly. whole thing, you exactly. know. Exactly. And suddenly, Josh is like on every television show for the next two months. Yeah. You know, Fox, everything from Fox News to MSNBC, all these business shows. Yeah. He got more free advertising for his company <laughs> out of this lawsuit, and then they then they dropped it, and they just look yeah. like they had. They oh. look like, you know, the bully who, uh, you know. I don't know. Yeah, it they just didn't, didn't look, look good for they, them. No, not at all. And it raised more awareness about Jess Mayo. So mm-hmm. it ultimately right. had a good result. And uh, But it really speaks to how frightened these industries are of change. And, you know, it, it's been happening for years. Oprah was sued when she talked about yeah. beef years ago and how we might have mad cow disease in the U.S. And you know, these industries are very litigious. They're quick to bully and threaten those that speak out against them or challenge them or threaten them in some ways. But that I think also, and the ag-gag laws are a very good example of that too. But I think that really is an, speaks to the fact that this system as it currently stands is untenable. It is indefensible. And when people have information and have real choices, uh, they're going to generally make more compassionate, more helpful choices. And mm-hmm. so we're seeing that with Just Mayo, and that lawsuit was a really interesting episode in the sort of food battles that have been waging and will continue to wage. And I think that consumers are going to ultimately be the, the judge and jury on this. Mm-hmm. And by purchasing plant-based foods grown in sustainable ways that you know we feel good about and that don't harm the planet, you know, we really can change things and, and it is starting to happen. Like you mm-hmm. mentioned, the, the plant-based milks now are all over the place. That mm-hmm. wasn't the case 10 years ago. Um, so there's, there's change happening and uh, it's not fast enough, but, but there are some right. good signs. And by the way, who knows what kind of eggs end up in the Heilman's Oy. anyway. I mean, it's, they've got to be, you know, yeah. that's, that's no organic product, right? No. So anybody Not who's listening, you know, pick up the Just Mayo. Instead, Just Mayo you know? is the way to go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So walk me through kind of, uh, you know, a day in the life of Farm Sanctuary. Like, you know, what is your, you know, what does your day look like? And also, what is the process of kind of, you know, rescuing these animals and, and finding a new home for them. I mean, we talked about this a little bit before, but I, I think I said something like, yeah, these farmers can't be too happy when you show up and say, you know, can we take that calf off your hands? Right, right. And how does that work? Well, you know, there are more sanctuaries now, and we currently operate three sanctuaries. And so we have rescues that come in regularly. And in some cases, it's actually people that work at these farms that will contact the authorities and report abuse. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a new thing that's happening. And it's a very good thing to see happening. Uh, Back when we started in the 1980s, you know, we used to actually do a lot of investigations and go in and see what's happening. And and investigations are still happening. Um, But sometimes now people that work at these places are actually starting to speak out. And whenever possible, we try to use laws to protect animals. Um, unfortunately, most laws regarding farm animals have been written to exclude common farming practices. Uh, so this is an ongoing battle that we're working on to mm-hmm. try to have laws protect them from the worst cruelties, you know, and some of the initiatives we've worked on over the years, give them space at least to turn around, which is so modest, but it's better than not having it. Um, 
but in terms of rescuing animals, so they'll come to the sanctuary and they will be checked out. Uh, in some cases, they're in really bad shape, so they might have to go to a veterinarian. And then when they're in good shape and we know they don't have anything contagious, they'll be introduced to other animals at the farm. Mm-hmm. And um, they may stay there, or if we can find a good home, we will place them in a good home. We're always looking for good homes for cows and pigs and chickens and turkeys and other farm animals. And then once they're at the farm, they just live out their lives. You know, they wake up in the morning, we open the barns for them and start feeding them and giving them water, making sure everybody's okay. And they get to go out and graze if they're cows. If they're pigs, they get to go out and wallow in the mud. They might get a couple belly rubs over the course Mm -hmm. of the day. Um, chickens, you know, scratch in the dirt, they get to roost, they just get to be who they are. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see farm animals enjoying life. And at Farm Sanctuary, they're our friends, not our food. They are fellow earthlings, and we want to enjoy and experience life in a positive way with them. And we get a chance to do that. Mm -hmm. And so our first rescues, in fact, were were partly ways to heal ourselves, because we used to do a lot of investigations and see horrible thing after horrible thing. And, you know, you had to do something positive out of that. And we would literally find living animals thrown on on piles of dead animals or living animals thrown in trash cans. So we started rescuing them. And then as those animals healed, we also healed. And, you know, Farm Sanctuary is a place of healing and transformation for animals and also for people who care about animals and care about living in a world where violence isn't the norm and where incredible pollution of factory farming isn't the norm Mm -hmm. and where bad health isn't the norm. You know, we want to create a different kind of world. And and that's really what Farm Sanctuary has become. It's a, a place where vegan is normal. It's a place where we aspire to live in a compassionate way, in a healthy way. And, you know, for me, a lot of my time now is out talking and uh, discussing these issues with various people and sometimes in the media and um, at schools and just encouraging people to think about food, you know, because I think one of the big problems is we just don't think about it, mm-hmm. you know, as a society. And and so we mindlessly consume and mindlessly adopt certain habits that don't serve us well and don't serve our planet well. And it's just about waking people up to these issues and getting people to think about them. So that's a big part of what I do now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, part of that has been doing some more of this athletic stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. like marathons and triathlons and things, just to show that as a vegan of many years, you know, you have all the energy you need, you have all the uh, nutrients you need from plant sources. And and I think, you know, so we're trying to work more and more across movements, not only in the animal movement, but also in the environmental movements, in the health movements, social justice movements, even in the religious world, the yoga world. Um, and business world. There's more and more vegan businesses now that are um, interested in advancing this cause. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really exciting things happening, and it's a, it's a movement. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a great time. Oh, it's a really cool time. Never been better. Yeah. And uh, I have to say, you know, thank you for inviting me up to, to the Acton Farm Sanctuary for the feeding of the turkeys. That was yes. super fun. Oh, yeah. It was so <laughs> like, cool you could come out like, to that. Yeah. And like a gift and, a, and an honor to be able to get up and talk a little bit. Um, but it was a great day. We had such a wonderful time. And, and I was just struck by uh, the community, first of all, this community that you've built and all these people that are that are come together around this idea and this cause, which was great to see. And also just to interact with these animals. You know, we're so programmed 
that when we think of a cow or we think of a pig, we think of what that animal looks like in the context of the typical farm situation, right? I have never seen cows as big as wow, the cows yeah. you have. Yeah. That, I don't know what that one cow, what his or her name is, but that was the biggest cow I've ever, I think I've ever seen in my life. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I'm not sure off the top. We have some cows that weigh yeah. like close to 3,000 pounds. I mean, pounds. it's huge. Wow. I'm like, is that the way it, it is when, you know, like what's going when, on here? When they're allowed like, It looks to like live. a freak of nature. It looks like out of like a movie or something, you know? When they're allowed to live, you know, they do get big. And they've uh-huh. been genetically bred in some cases to grow very big. Uh-huh. So they have those genetics, but they're killed at a young age for I the see. meat industry. So once they come to Farm Sanctuary, they just are allowed to live and they can get to be gigantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. And they're gentle, though, too, <laughs> yeah, which is so funny. It's the biggest cow I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, do you have any uh, events coming up, Farm Sanctuary? I mean, how is it like if someone's listening and they want to visit, they can't just pop in, right? You have like days where you're open to the public? That's right. We do various visitor days. So they could go to our website, farmsanctuary.org, and mm-hmm. that would have information about various events that we have coming up on the farms. We also do tours of the farms, and um, it's great for people to come and get to look at these animals and get to know them as individuals, to look into the eyes of a pig, to see how big a cow is. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes turkeys leave and come and sit on your lap. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the best thing to do is just to look at the website, Farm Sanctuary, and uh, there's information on visiting there. Yeah. And you've got a bunch of appearances coming up. I was looking at the site, like, because the book is starting to heat up. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the thing at Skirball looks cool. You're going to oh, do a I... panel with Moby and yeah. who else, like a couple other people. Yeah. Moby and Gene Stone Gene and Joel Stone, Stein yeah, from yeah. Time Magazine. Uh-huh. And uh, so, yeah, we're doing a panel at Skirball, going to be at ABC Carpet and Home in New York City. Are both of those open to the public? They are, absolutely. So you're doing, like, you're kind of your formal book party in New York is going to be at ABC. Yep. And the one in LA is going to be at Skirball. That's right, yes. Cool. That's yeah, and I'm exciting. really excited about it. And then after that, I go to Phoenix, and then San Francisco, and then Portland, and uh, going to be all over the place. It's really, really neat to see so much enthusiasm around the country, and um, and, and ABC and Skirball are, are, it's amazing to have those kind of mm-hmm. venues. How was it writing the book with Gene? It was good. Gene and Gene. <laughs> That's right. It's very yeah. rare that you see Gene and Gene. I know. <laughs> Two Genes. But it was really great working with him. And you know, he wrote the book Forks Over Knives that mm-hmm. really has had a huge impact. And he worked with Rip on uh, Munchie Engine 2 Diet and Engine 2. So, you know, he knows his way around this, this world and this kind of book. Absolutely. Yeah. So we were able to include more of the health aspects of it, the, the science talking about the benefits of eating plants instead of animals. Also, the science of talking about the benefits of enjoying a mindful relationship with animals. You know, there's science that shows that when you interact in a positive way with a, a dog, for example, you know, your stress levels go down mm-hmm. and it reduces the risks of various health problems. So emotional well-being, you know, goes along with in, inner, in interacting with animals in a positive way. Whereas if we do it in a negative way, it kind of creates an abusive relationship. So we were able to touch on some of those in the book. And, mm-hmm. and that's one of the tenets is to engage in a mindful relationship with other animals. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when it comes to farm animals, of course, most people don't really do that in this country. So that's a huge part of what we want people to start thinking about. And, um, and, and, and I think feel better about it. You know, people know cats and dogs and they love living with their cats and dogs. 
but don't recognize that cows and pigs and chickens and turkeys are individuals too. Mm -hmm. And if given the chance, they would love to hang out and sleep on your couch in some cases. (laughs) (laughs) So so they're, you know, they can be cuddly as well. That's cool. Um, But people don't think about them in that way. Our, uh, our 11 year old daughter, Mathis, she's obsessed with wolves, Uh like just from very early age, like that's her spirit animal. Like Mm -hmm. she's super into it, like covered her room in pictures and all that. And for her 11th birthday, she, well, first of all, she started like a, a, a fashion line as a 10 year old. She has a whole business and she designs clothes and she uses all, she doesn't, it's all vegan, you know, like she makes like faux leather jackets and all this and she knows how to sew and it's, it's cool. I'll, wow. I'll tell you about it later, but, yeah. um, <clears throat> she calls her line Wolfstone and she donates 10% of her profits or her, her revenue, not just her profits, her revenue to, um, a wolf sanctuary called Wolf Connection, which wow. is in Acton. Wow. It's like really close to um, Farm Sanctuary. Farm sanctuary. Wow. And for her 11th birthday, she wanted to go to uh, Wolf Connection and check it out with her friends. And like this guy doesn't do, the guy who runs it doesn't, it's not open to the public. But we were able to contact him and like way ahead of time and work something out. And we went and we spent the better part of a day with all of these amazing animals. Mm-hmm. And got to interact with, like, you would never think, like, oh, well, you can't get close to a wolf. But he's using these animals. Basically, he uses them. um, He brings groups of uh, sort of uh, underprivileged youths or, like, youths that are, like, getting into trouble a lot. Like, you know, sort of, and it brings them up and they do these camps. And the animals are, like, sort of therapeutic for these kids. Yeah. And uh, he's had, like, amazing results. It's a whole long story. But it was super interesting yeah. to actually, we would go in the pens and like be with some of these animals. Some of them are half bred or, you know, they're not all like f- completely full bred wolves, but it was an experience that I'd never like would have anticipated that was really touching and amazing and all driven by my daughter. She was the one who kind of drove it. So I can attest to the, uh, you know, just the healing aspect of kind of being around these animals and the in- kind of impact that that can have. Absolutely. But when I was up there, I was thinking about you the whole time. I was like, yeah, these guys are right next to each other. You, I should connect you with That'd them. That'd be nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd love to meet them yeah, yeah. and see the place and see the wolves. Cool. And how's the, uh, how's the publishing experience been? It's been good. Yeah. I mean, Gene, you know, it's not your first lot. book. This is not your first rodeo, right? So, and That's publishing's right. changing, right? It so. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, a lot of online stuff now, just, you know, getting the word out that way. Uh, the book tour is somewhat similar to the one I did previously. Um, but I think we're going to actually be hitting more cities this time around. Um, so it's, it's been a good experience and Rodale has mm-hmm. been very good to work with. They've been very much behind the book. Um, they took all the food photos, which are wonderful. So they really put a lot behind it and, right. and I'm really grateful for that. That's great, man. Yeah. 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 So how's your, you got a book coming out too. I right do. Right well, now. a couple of weeks after yours, yeah, yeah. you know, so, uh, you know, I'm in the same thing right now. It's, Just getting, it's it all. good getting everything organized and we've got one more pass on it and, but it's all kind of, you know, coming together, which is, it's exciting. It's amazing how much work it is, you know, like you, you think you're done with it and it's like, wait, we're still not done. Like, you know, and then the whole marketing, like all of that, like, wow, you know, it's, I, I don't think people realize how much work it oh, takes. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, producing it and then also the marketing of it. And both. yeah, the marketing, uh, you, you, there's this idea that, that because you're with a publisher that you don't have to worry about that part of it, but really as the author, you have to shoulder that, you have to take that mantle and, and run with it. The like, majority of it. Yeah. So yeah. there's a that becomes like a full time job. So 
It know. does, yes, <laughs> with a lot of travel sometimes, <laughs> yeah, which can be a little tiring. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, w- I think some of the travel is probably less than it used to be because so much of it is now driven by stuff you're doing online. Like, yeah. you know, hopefully this podcast, you know, will move the needle for you. And, you know, the, the days of like showing up at bookstores, you know, you got to do some of that, but, you know, like, you know, going all over the place to a million bookstores where like three people show up. At, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, you know. How many bookstore, you know, book signing things do you go to, you know? Right. I don't no, know about you, but like, I don't go to too many. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? No, I, I'm going to hit it pretty hard early on. You Are know, you so New York, LA, and then, but then, but no, it's true. I think a lot of it now is done online. I mean, that's mm-hmm. where a lot of books are are now purchased. And mm-hmm. so we'll certainly be putting a lot of energy into driving people to Amazon and to, you know, other online booksellers. Mm-hmm. Interesting, but traveling a fair bit too. I, I like actually getting out and seeing people in various communities that are interested in this work and that are farm sanctuary supporters. And mm-hmm. it's really great to hear what they're doing. You know, there's people and, and great vegan restaurants all over the place as well. Mm-hmm. So, and, and for the book, we have contributors from all over the country who gave us amazing vegan recipes, including from mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. your, your tempeh that's meatloaf. Right. Yeah, we, that's right. We did contribute one. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's really, you know, so that's another cool thing about traveling around the country and seeing people that have been part of the book and then uh, just seeing, being in the community and seeing what's happening in, you know, Des Moines or wherever it might be. I don't have mm-hmm. a trip there currently planned, but maybe at some point, you know, right. just seeing what's happening. It's fun. Cool. Well, the book is called Living the Farm Sanctuary Life. It comes out April 7th. I'm excited for you. No, thank and, you. And uh, we're going to be in Marshall together, but I think we're also, are you doing the New York City Veg? Yeah, that's the thing? 15th it's coming of up March, pretty soon. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. March 15th, yep. I'll see you there. Right on. We'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, if you're, uh, if you're digging on Gene and you want to learn more, the best place is to go to farmsanctuary.com. Or dot .org. Dot .org, yes. Right. And, uh, and you're an online. You're an easy guy to find. But on Twitter, is it just yeah. Gene Bauer? Gene Bauer, yeah. That's B-A-U. R, no E. B-A-U-R, no E. That's right, exactly. Yes. And I got Bauer Facebook like off. the hockey equipment company, right? I'm not sure. Do they have an E in that There's or not? E? I'm not sure. There's oh, an maybe e I'm wrong. No. Just no E yeah, is the main exactly. thing. Just no the e. four-letter right. word, B-A-U-R. Right. Cool, man. Uh, thanks so much for doing the podcast. Always love seeing you, Rich. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Peace. Yeah, man. Plants. <laughs> Good stuff, you guys. Gene's a real deal. Don't forget to pick up his new book, check him out, and show him some love on Instagram, Twitter, and the like. So let's support this guy together. Send me your questions for future Q&A podcasts. We're going to queue one of those up pretty soon. Send those to info at richroll.com. I know before I was saying findingultra at gmail.com. Well, we have a new email for all your Q&A questions, info at richroll.com. To find all the information, education, products, tools, resources, and inspiration you need to take your health, wellness, fitness, and self-actualization to the next level, go to richroll.com, peruse our nutrition products, our educational products, and yes, our garments, all made with 100% organic cotton. If you like online courses, I got a couple of those at Mind Body Green, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, and The Art of Living with Purpose, both affordably priced. Go to mindbodygreen.com for more information on those. If you like the podcast, give us a review on iTunes. Pick up the free app in the App Store to listen to episodes older than the most recent 50. And keep supporting the show by telling your friends using the Amazon banner ad. 
and by sharing it on social media. Keep Instagramming you guys and just tag me at Rich Roll. Peace. Plants. Yeah.